Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.scbts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoyed the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Thank you very much, Dr. Aiken, for the blessing and the privilege of being able to join you today here in the chapel at Southeastern Seminary. I first want to begin by giving honor and glory to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was responsible for all of this and for the salvation uh, that we share. We give God praise, honor, and glory to him. Before I move on to the message, I just want to say how thankful and humbled I am to be here uh, with you at Southeastern Seminary today. Uh, so thankful, Dr. Aiken, to you for our 25-plus years of friendship uh, and, and brotherly love. Uh, you have been a tremendous source of encouragement and inspiration, not only uh, to me but also to my wife, Linda, and to our family over the years. You have been a steadfast and beloved friend and brother, and it is an honor to be here today uh, to share with you and to be able to share the Word of God with the Southeastern Seminary community. Dr. Aiken uh, alluded earlier to our uh, meeting each other back in the late 1980s at Criswell College when I was a student there, and he, uh, I believe, was an assistant professor of historical and exegetical theology or something like that at the time. And I remember my first uh, exposure, formal exposure to theology, was in Dr. Aiken's class. Uh, in what I believe was New Testament survey or something like that at the time. And those classes had a profound impact upon my faith as well as upon my knowledge. And I'm so thankful to the Lord for even today uh, I still draw strength, inspiration, and encouragement from those classes we had way back many years ago at the Criswell College. And so give God praise and thanks for you, Dr. Aiken. And for each of you here in the Southeastern uh, community, uh, greetings from uh, the great state of Maryland, uh, Rockville, Maryland, in the uh, shadow, if you will, of the nation's capital, uh, which sometimes I otherwise refer to as, the, as Babylon. <laughs> uh, it is, of course, uh, obviously one of the most important places on the face of the earth, but you should know that... Uh, the gospel is going forth there, even in the nation's capital and the communities around it, and we give God praise for what he is doing sovereignly and providentially. Uh, and we praise God for what he's doing here at Southeastern Seminary, uh, among you under Dr. Aiken's leadership. As I think about where we are today now in the 21st century, in the early years still of the 21st century, and the third millennium, A.D. I think about the state of the church, the churches, the congregations of, and gatherings of Christian believers, particularly in our country, of course, in the United States of America, and the state of affairs that we live with today. And I cannot help but over and over again come back to a particular passage of Scripture that I want to take the time to do some exposition on 
with us this morning, although I am certainly going to run out of time. I never am able to finish this text, but, but I want to preach it nonetheless because it is apropos for where we are today in today's world, and as a matter of fact, in today's church climate. A pastor was interviewing a person for membership not too long ago. And in the middle of the interview, which had been going very well, the pastor said, at this point, tell me, in your own words, what is the gospel? To which the person paused for a moment, looked, and with somewhat of a curious sort of a face. And so the pastor, recognizing that the person wasn't quite sure of what he was asking, went on to say, okay, tell me your Christian testimony. Ah! The person lit up and said, well, let me tell you about how I came to Jesus and how Jesus saved me and, and how I came to know him. And I found that exchange an, instru- an instructive in- exchange in this sense. That for many of our people in many congregations throughout this land, you could ask somebody what their personal testimony is, and they could tell you long and lengthy stories about what God had to do to get them to Jesus. My personal testimony, what the Lord did, how the Lord uh, had to go through many things to get my attention. Yet at the same time, there are many people that if you ask them a simple question that may sound ever so simple to us in a setting such as this, all right, define the gospel for me. You actually might be surprised to find that there are many people in our congregations who would have to pause for a moment to think about how they might formulate an answer to that statement. You see, the reality is, is that even if all of our testimonies are different in terms of what God had to do to get a hold of us, to get our attention in order to bring us to Jesus, the reality is, is that we all have experienced the exact identical same testimony. The Lord Jesus has saved every single one of us who is genuinely saved the exact same way. We all have the perfectly identical testimony when it comes to the heart of the gospel and the salvation of our souls by the power of this gospel. Whatever God had to do, whatever we can testify to that took place in our lives to get our attention and to bring us to our knees to repentance and faith, whatever, whatever testimony you may have, and however variant uh, those testimonies may be, even represented in this room, the reality is we all have the exact and identical same testimony when it comes to salvation. The same Jesus, the same cross, the same resurrection, the same blood, the same Lord Jesus, it's the same gospel that saves faithfully every single time. And in fact, as you know, as well as I do, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But I believe that we are in something of a significant crisis today in many of our local churches throughout this land, which are full, in many cases, of people who say they know Jesus and who say it with sincerity and passion, 
but who actually are not all that familiar with the gospel beyond saying that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. Now, of course, Jesus having died for our sins and rose again certainly is the gospel without question. But there are too many within our congregations who could not go far beyond that, or not far beyond it so much as deeper into those truths very far. If any of our people can tell you Jesus died for my sins and rose again, this is what he, this is what God did to get me to Jesus and then not much more. And that's because many of us have the erroneous idea of the gospel that the gospel has the power to save and that somehow or another, through some other means, we're going to be sanctified beyond that. When in reality, the gospel not only has the power to save us, but it also has the power to sanctify us now that we are saved. And that as Christians, that we should not only recognize that God's power in the gospel saved us, but that it's God's power in the gospel that continues to save and continues to sanctify us. And not only that, but that the gospel is the richest treasure that cannot possibly begin to be exhausted. I know in many circles and settings, congregations and places where I've preached, when I've shared some of these thoughts and insights with people, I've gotten some curious looks along the way from people who you would expect would automatically know these things, except that very often in many churches today, we don't teach these things with any degree of depth. You see, because it takes more than a simple 20-minute sermon on Sunday morning in order to teach these truths in depth to a congregation over a period of time. Now, on Sundays in my church, uh, for example, it's all I can do to get done in an hour. And I routinely don't get done in an hour. So since I'm the pastor, I routinely will stop wherever I stop in the sermon and pick up with that message next Sunday and keep preaching it. And what I like to say to my people is, well, what else were you going to be doing? If I ran on to another sermon, then you'd be picking that one up and trying to keep up with me. No, let's stop and go in depth for a change into the truth of God's Word. In today's world, people are so busy and so superficial that they have no time to go in depth into much of anything. That everything is to be read fast, to be preached fast, to be taught fast, to be done quickly, and to get through it. And then we assume by that somehow or another that we are developing deep people in the faith. When in reality, there is no way to microwave discipleship and Christian maturity. It takes time, it takes labor, it takes spiritual sweat equity, if you will, and depth in order to develop into maturity in the faith. So what I want to do is I want to take us to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at this point. Beginning at verse 1. Because I believe, despite all of the amazing things that God may be doing in your church, wherever you serve or where you worship, that for many in many churches and for far too many throughout our land, we are actually in the process of forgetting the gospel. Some years ago, back I think in 2007, I preached this text to my church, and at that time, 
uh, our congregation. I was new as the pastor. I was alone within my first year. And the congregation, many people were stunned at what they heard from these verses yet over again, even though many of them were familiar with them. Because the reality is, is that far too often in far too many of our churches, we spend time focusing on so many other things, and we miss too often the very heart and soul and essence of the Christian gospel itself. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what I believe Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at this point. This is chapter 15 as we would locate it here. Way deep into not only this letter, but toward the end of the letter, and now Paul comes to these words. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I'll pause right there for the sake of time. Is it not interesting that at this point in Paul's letter toward the end that he now comes to remind them? The literal translation of the, the word you say, I make known, as the NASB does, I make known the gospel to you. Wait a minute, but what has Paul been doing for the previous 14 chapters? Well, time will not permit me to go through the previous 14 chapters, but simply to say that he had written this letter in order to address a whole host of disorders, problems, challenges, and issues taking place among the Christians in the church at Corinth. That he was dealing with moral disorders. That he was dealing with spiritual and doctrinal disorders. That he was dealing with pride and arrogance in the congregation. The need for church discipline to be exercised. Immorality that had run rampant in the church. Questions that people had that they could not get answered. False teachers and false teaching throughout the congregation and throughout the community there in Corinth. Having to address issues of marriage and helping to disciple people and straighten out the issues that were plaguing this church. And after all of that, at this point in verse, now in chapter 15, he says to them, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Hmm. Now everything he had been saying up to this point that he had written to them was all based upon gospel and rooted in gospel truths that they themselves in the church, at least many in the church evidently, had forgotten. Many of them apparently had forgotten the gospel that Paul had preached to them just like the situation in too many of our congregations today. You see it all the time. In the moral disorders that take place in the church, people who forget the gospel. Many who seem to forget the gospel that apparently saved them, although one has to wonder 
at times, whether some or many among us are indeed genuinely saved. Paul here in chapter 15, verse 1, I would remind you, I want to make known to you, brothers, the gospel I preached to you. And I emphasize those words, the gospel I, Paul says, preached to you. A gospel that Paul preached, he says to them. By the way, in contrast to the false versions and other varieties and aberrations of the gospel that were routinely afloat in that day. I want to remind you, he says, of the gospel I preached to you. Focusing on there, on his authentic preaching of the gospel. But not only that, he also recognizes their authentic possession of the gospel, at least as a church, which you receive, and their authentic profession of the gospel, in which you stand, and then the authentic perseverance of the gospel, by which you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Hmm. Now I know that there's been some discussion among many scholars uh, of this phrase at the end of verse 2, uh, what, uh, in terms of what it means to have believed in vain. But listen to this. Let me share with you my interpretation of this. It is simply this. Any distortion of the gospel is no longer the biblical gospel. Paul says this over to the Galatians when he says, If anybody comes to you and preaches a gospel other than the gospel I preach to you, let him be accursed. The tweaking of the gospel, the distorting of the gospel is actually no gospel at all. So people who put their faith in a tweaked or distorted or corrupted gospel, however sincere, passionate, and genuine they may be, have actually believed in vain. And so there are many people in our congregations who have believed. They've just believed in corruptions and distortions of the gospel that would in essence mean that they could not be genuinely saved. That is what I believe, in part, Paul means here. That is what I believe is, a pers- is, a, is an important application of these words right here. And that's the reason why the emphasis, I believe, is upon the gospel that Paul says, I preached to you. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul makes it clear to them at this point. This gospel did not begin with me. This did not originate with me. I didn't conjure up and come up with the gospel. The gospel has its origin in God. I am only one who is called to deliver that which is of first importance, of first priority. Now for those of you in this congregation and under the sounds of my voice who have been called to preach the word of God, to preach the gospel, listen, this is one of the most important verses for preaching the gospel, for you to recognize and for us to recognize that we've been called to deliver as of first importance that which has been entrusted to us. It's not for us to change it. It's not for us to tweak it. It's not for us to do anything with it. 
but preach it, deliver it faithfully as God has revealed it. And here in verse 3, he comes with the content, the very heart and soul of the gospel. Here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, I know you know this. And I know that many, if not all of you in the room, could recite this verse from memory. But let me ask you this. Have you thought about these words? Notice them now. Christ died for our sins. Every single word in that statement thus far is pregnant full with biblical truth. First of all, beginning with Christ. That the gospel begins with Christ Jesus, who himself is the very embodiment of the gospel. Let me say this in tribute, by God's grace, to my professor, my first New Testament professor, Dr. Danny Aiken. When we were taking that New Testament survey class way back in the 1980s at Criswell College, it was there that I first learned about the four major Christological passages of the New Testament. John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2. All of which is, is, is found within the content of the first word of the gospel here, Christ died for our sins. Christ. Listen, if we don't have a, a true and correct biblical understanding of who Christ is, then our view of the gospel is distorted from the start. And there are too many people, I believe, who preach the gospel uh, in our land who simply don't have a right biblical view of Christ. But if you have a wrong view of Christ, then everything else is going to be wrong in your preaching. Christ! First of all, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him. A reference back to creation in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where Christ was there in the beginning from eternity past with the Father. Christ, first word in this statement, Christ died for our sins. But not only that, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes that He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, Firstborn in kind, not in time, in preeminence and by priority. And in Hebrews chapter 1, in the past, God spoke through our forefathers, through the prophets, but now He has spoken to us definitively by His Son. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. And of course Philippians chapter 2 there. Where the scripture says that we should allow this mind of Christ Jesus to be in us who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing. He emptied himself and became a servant and became obedient unto death. Even death on a cross so that God has given him the name that is above every name, has exalted him to the highest place, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in quotation of Isaiah chapter 45, by the way, and every tongue shall confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is contained just in the word Christ. Let's go on to the next word real quickly as I have only a few moments left. I always run out of time uh, everywhere I go it seems. I'm running out of time. Uh, there's never understood. It's okay though. God be praised, you know. I don't know when the last time was. I actually finished the sermon, I think, at the church, you know, but no, I can't finish them. But listen to this. Christ died. I want you to consider this, brothers and sisters. The Son of God eternal, who has existed with the Father from eternity past, perfectly and fully God, fully man. The Son, Christ, died. You see, perhaps the problem with too many of us Christians is that we've become so familiar with these things and our familiarity causes us to miss so many incredible truths that are right there before our eyes. Christ, the Son of God, the Eternal One, dies? How so? Well, not without the Incarnation. Not without the Incarnation, not without the Virgin Birth. You can't believe the Gospel and deny the Virgin Birth. You can't believe the Gospel and deny the Incarnation. Christ died. He's fully God and fully man. That is how He was able to come and die for our sins. The eternal Son of God died. Have you ever stopped to consider just some kind of a glimpse in, into the window of the experience of Christ the Son of God who is eternal, subjecting himself to death? God cannot die, yet he sent his one and only Son eternal into the world to subject himself to death. Now, death is a formidable foe for every one of us in many ways, humanly speaking. How is it that God... Would, com would commit himself to death when God has the power to eliminate death from existence. And he most certainly will one day. Yet he subjects himself to it. You see, we go around talking about Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We talk about Christ's love. But very often we fail to think about it deeply. Because we're so familiar with it. God subjects himself to death. God, the perfect, holy, eternal God, subjects himself to death for us. Christ died for our sins. Listen to this. Listen to this, friends. Here we see not only the atonement and the atoning work of the death of Christ. Of course, as John writes over there in, in 1 John Little children, I write this to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. But that he died for. Thus indicating the substitutionary nature of the atonement that Christ died for. In place of, as our 
substitute, the only acceptable substitute and sacrifice for sins. Oh, and by the way, it, it is our sins, thus indicating our guilt, the guilt that we had before God, the guilt that all humans have before God, that all the world will have to stop and be accountable to God for its guilt, that Christ died for our sins. Many of us, even though we're Christians and have repented and believed the gospel, must be reminded regularly about our sins. And that must be reminded regularly to have enough humility to repent and confess our sins. As the scripture says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous and just. He will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ died for our sins. It wasn't, it was not His sins. He knew no sin. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sins. Sin that began with Adam. Hmm. According to the scriptures. According to what scriptures? As I hurry to a close real quickly here in the next moment. According to what scriptures? Well, according to that two-thirds of our Bible that far too many Christian believers in the local church anymore knows very little about. The Old Testament. Paul here historically was referring to Old Testament Scripture. The Bible from which Jesus and the apostles preached. The Bible from which they preached and proclaimed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in fact, well, when we look at the Old, Old Testament Scripture, it is the biblical foundation for the New Testament and is therefore the biblical foundation for the gospel itself. So Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Now you can imagine, I'm sure, that there's a whole lot more that we could say about these things in depth. But do you get the sense of what I'm referring to and what I'm saying? How deep the Gospel is. So deep that there's never enough time to get through it all and to exhaust it. The treasures of the Gospel are inexhaustible. But if our people in our churches never, at the very least, catch a glimpse of this, then how will they ever know something of the richness of the gospel beyond simply their personal testimony of what God had to do to get them to Jesus way back when? When that's only the beginning, there is so much more in the vast depth of the character and the person of God and the person of Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished for us. Listen, the Bible goes on to say he was buried. And you know, there's often not a lot said about the significance of the burial of Jesus, but he died bearing our sins. Buries. Buries them in the grave. You know, there's no saying anything dead ought to be buried. And he was crucified on the cross. And then delivered to be buried in a borrowed tomb. By the way, by point of practical application, brothers and sisters, because of the power that is in the cross, there are a lot of things we ought to bury as Christians. Bury and leave them buried. Not only that, the scripture goes on to say that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures 
raised on the third day. Listen to this. Now, I believe it is John Owen who says, who talks about the death of uh, sin in uh, the, the death of Christ. What I like to say is this. I like to say that through the death of Christ, we have the death of sin. In the resurrection of Christ, we have the death of death. For on the third day, he conquers death, which came as a result of sin, when God raised him from the dead on the third day. This message of the gospel, listen, would not be complete without the resurrection. It is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus that God raised him from the dead, thus overcoming and conquering death. That is the reason why Paul can say later on in this very chapter, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Yes, yes, brothers and sisters. You know, for many of us in the local church, we spend our time complaining and whining about what we cannot do. Complaining and whining about our struggles and our troubles. And listen, we can have great and profound suffering and persecution. I'm not minimizing the difficulties that, that we suffer through as Christian believers. But, but just let me remind you of something. There is no problem in your life that is greater than a dead Jesus. The Father sent him to the cross to die. And on the third day, the Father raised him from the dead. If your problems are greater than a dead Jesus, well, <laughs> then maybe God can't help you. But for you to think, erroneously so, that God can't help you in your situation when God himself raised his son from the dead on the third day, surely, surely, the Lord can help you and me in our suffering, in our trials, in our tribulations, in the things that perplex us. When we don't know, we don't understand, we don't have an answer, we don't have an explanation, we cannot explain why things happen. God knows. Remember, he raised his son from the dead. No challenge greater than raising the Son of God. My friends, as I come to a close, I want to remind us of this gospel, but of the depth of the gospel, because the deeper we go into the truths of the gospel, the more we realize, recognize, and learn to live by the power that is therein. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before your presence and we thank you for your grace and your goodness to us in the gospel. Thank you for the privilege you have given to us, Lord, of being able to dive deeper and deeper into the truths of the gospel, knowing that the gospel is the greatest, most inexhaustible treasure because Jesus is the very embodiment of the gospel. And Father, we thank you so much that you have given us the privilege of being able to preach and to proclaim and to share this good news of the gospel with the world and to rejoice 
with the gospel as Christian believers and to encourage each other on to love, good deeds, spiritual growth, and maturity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.